Hey everybody, welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast. This is a jubilant edition of the podcast because we have some very exciting news regarding the return to play for the NHL. The season is agreed upon, now they just have to sign the dotted line and the dates for this upcoming NHL season where we get to see the Devils play for the first time since March have been decided. So, to go through those dates with me and talk about a lot of other stuff that we have planned for you today, I have, of course, John Fisher. How's it going, John? It goes well, Dan. We are less than two weeks away from New Jersey Devils hockey players actually getting onto an ice rink and formally playing the game of ice hockey. Yeah, so you mentioned that that's uh, less than two weeks away. Let's go through some of the other dates uh, mentioned in this agreement here between the NHL and the NHLPA. And again, you know, depending on the evolving situation, these dates may change, but these are the uh, benchmarkers that the NHL has set for uh, these landmark events. And the first of those is coming up in, at the time of recording this, in eight days on December 28th as the waivers period begins. And so do you have anything to uh, add in terms of what the Devils have to do to be compliant to that point? Well, the cap is certainly not a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty obvious. Um, obviously, a lot has to be determined on the opt out deadline. Mm -hmm. So one of the so currently the NHL and the NHLPA agree to a tentative deal. And the, as as we're discussing this. The, the vote is going on, I believe, right now as we're recording this. The Board of Governors is, is set to have their vote on Sunday. Uh, so by the time the episode goes up, we'll know for sure whether or not the league agrees with the plan. I would hope so because mm -hmm. they agree, you know, they came up with it. Uh, and, the pl and the Players Association, their vote has to be uh, done in full as well. The executive board of the Players Association did say they'll support the plan. So that's a pr that's a good sign that the Players Union is probably going to go, go along with it. Funnily enough, the one big elephant in the room is uh, related to you-know-what, but we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, in terms of what the Devils absolutely need to do ahead of their December 31st uh, camp date, is they got to get Jesper Bratt and Mackenzie Blackwood signed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's like priority number one and number two. If you want these players for camp, and camp this year is going to be very different than normal camps. Um, not only is it going to be shorter than usual, um, you're limited to 36 skaters. Uh, that's something Elliot Friedman literally tweeted out uh, today, I believe, mm -hmm. that, uh, <laughs> you know, there's going to be no preseason games. So whatever day, whatever you do in camp, you're going straight into the season. Mm -hmm. So guess what? You know, you need to have your players ready to go from day one because you're going to start playing meaningful games on January 13th. Yeah. And assuming that's when the devil's first game will be. Right. And with the COVID considerations, each team is allowed a bit of an extra taxi squad of players um, to travel just in case, you know, there are positive tests and people need to isolate. And this is kind of like what we were alluding to on a past episode where they basically have full season black aces happening here. Exactly. And there's going to be further regulations that still have to be decided because the way it's been discussed so far is that teams can have up to six players on this taxi squad. So it's like four to six players. Mm -hmm. However, they're allowed to travel and practice with the team, but they get paid on whatever their AHL salary is, oh, and they have to be still, <laughs> and you, and they still have to be called up like through the process. Mm -hmm. So if so, so that's ultimately like the big concern, the big question that all teams, not just the Devils, have to deal with, is do you put veter AHL veterans on your taxi squad, knowing that look, they they know the process, they know what it's like to, you know, have to jump in and fill in on a short notice. 
but then you risk losing them to waivers. You have to pay them more because they're because they're AHL veterans. They're typically on higher salaries. Or do you use this to host um, younger players, pros- prospects, if you will? You know the the Yanni Kwakinins, the Fabian Zetterlunds of the world, uh, also the Michael McLeods. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so forth. Do you do you keep them around and basically you know cycle them in, especially if it comes out later that the NHL is going to require that you have to play your taxi squad players. You can't just bury them on your taxi squad and use them as is and hope, you know, and if you happen to have no COVID cases, no injuries, then no concern. Mm -hmm. There's also the, there's also the other, the other shoe to drop is what is the AHL going to be doing? Right. Uh, They're, they're, they're not going to start any earlier than February 5th, as I understand it. And of course that's completely up in the air. So, you know, if the AHL does get a season off, you get to have the fun question of, do you want your, taxi squad players just to hang out or do you want them in the AHL where they could actually play and make their team be competitive? Uh, it's not going to be easy for anybody to decide, but nobody ever said this would be easy. <laughs> no. And something you just alluded to the season starting when the devils play their first game on January 13th. And that's when the season starts across for all teams. And we mentioned that the devils are going to be back in training camp in less than two weeks on the 31st of December, because they were one of seven teams to not make the return to play tournament that happened earlier in the summer uh, of this year. So they get a few extra days to repair. I mean, it's much less substantial than initially thought because the agreement took a while to process um, between the NHL and the PA, but they do get four extra days and then training camp begins for the rest of the teams on January 3rd. Then on February 1st, uh, less than a month into the season, teams can begin requesting that players waive their no-moving clauses for expansion draft purposes. So if they plan to expose them in the expansion draft, which will be happening later on in 2021, uh, they can request that a no-moving clause is is, uh, waived there for certain players. Then on April 12th, we have the trade deadline, and the season is set to end as of now on May 8th, with the playoffs starting on May 11th. The last possible day factored in for the playoffs is July 15th, and then 24 hours after the playoffs end in full and the Stanley Cup is awarded, the buyout period begins for contracts, and then July 21st will be the expansion draft where Seattle will pick their first uh, franchise players. The 23rd and 24th of July is the NHL entry draft, and free agency this year will begin on July 28th. That's a lot of information. (laughs) That's a lot of information, and... It shows how close things are put together. I mean, the, as as we've discussed in the past, NBC has the Olympics. The Olympics were moved from 2020 to 2021. That's apparently starting on July 23rd. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, the, the NHL has to be done with their playoffs before then. Mm-hmm. So it looks like that's compliant with that. So good for them. It may mean NHL draft coverage and free agency might be limited <laughs> compared to past years. But like everything else in life, uh, the, you know, in 2020 and 2021, you just kind of have to roll with the punches. Um, it's going to be another condensed schedule, but the good news is it's closer to what normalcy looks like. Instead of waiting until October for your draft, it's going to be in July, which is about a month after when it's normally held. Same with free agent frenzy. It's typically July 1st. Instead, it'll be July 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hope, and the hope here is that after this 56 game season and the playoffs assuming no no further restrictions happen and nothing else terrible happens uh that causes everything to be put back on lockdown and pause um we could see a return to the normals 
setup that we're you, you and I are used to mm-hmm. um, for the 2021 and 2022 season. Yeah, and that's that's the ideal. That's why they're compressing this down to a 56 game schedule. They want you know everything back with fans. Obviously, depending on if the area is um, able to comply with that, with you know safety measures in place and. This 56-game gauntlet that the Devils are about to run against the likes of Boston, Buffalo, the Rangers, the Islanders, Philly, Pittsburgh, and Washington, uh, it's not going to be an easy division. It is by no No. means going to be a fun time, and maybe it'll be a tough time to watch, but at the very least, it's, first of all, 56 games, which is not the full slog that, you know, when it gets to the end of the season, for example, and february march when the devils are out of it uh doesn't feel good to watch at that point but at this this way they get some valuable experience playing against some tough teams in a shortened season and they're not exactly in a rush to win anytime soon so a shortened season doesn't really you know impact any level of urgency there they've got a a lot of young guys that are um, set to develop well and they're set to use these 56 games as more of a development period um, than, you know, an actual chance of competition, I would say. I, I would I would disagree. I, okay. I mean, to a degree, you're, you're right in that I don't think the Devils are in a position to start contending. Like, I don't I don't anticipate they're going to do what the L.A. Kings recently announced saying we're, we're done rebuilding like L.A. You're you, you, you've been absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not uh, you may want to rethink that thought. Um, but yeah, um, this is kind of like, you know, if, if you're in a position to go make the playoffs, I'm always in opinion of go make the playoffs. Like, because if we learned anything over the past decade or so is that making the playoffs is not a guarantee mm-hmm. like it used to be for this franchise. It's not it's something that we used to take for granted as Devils fans. Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> making the playoffs is like, you know, great. You made the playoffs, but we want you to win around. We want you to go all the way. We want we want another cup. Well, I would hope that the last six, seven years have made Pete made fans. I know in my experience, it made me realize the importance of making the playoffs. Like that is a legitimate achievement, even if it is just meaning just beating half of the league to get in. So, you know, if Crawford and Blackwood play out of their minds early on, the fact that everybody's going to be starting the season with a lot of rust on their body, since there's going to be no preseason games or exhibition games, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if the devils get hot early and manage to, maintain their situation they it's not impossible that they could sneak in and i'm of the opinion of if you can do it go for go for it i mean it's not like the 2021 draft class i'm not gonna say it's not talented dan but i i I, it's hard to get excited for prospect lists where you know a third to a half of the top 10 hasn't played a single game yet this season so i have a little i'm a little uneasy on trusting you know the prospect pool given that a good chunk of it hasn't seen one minute of ice time yet. So yeah, the, you know, the go, problem with the go format, shoot your shot if you can shoot your shot, right? Yeah. But the, the problem with the format is that because of the divisional split, it's going to be it's going to mean the playoffs are decided a little differently than usual, where the top four teams yes. from each division move on instead of you know doing a conference format where you can theoretically get five and three or even six and two if it's a ghoulish enough year. But um, you know, now with the format being what it was with the top three teams in each division getting a spot that was no longer possible. But there have been times in the past where, you know, they could have had more points than a team in another division and um, taken a spot that way. However, if they're supposed to make the top four of this division, I'm not really sure which four teams they are, which I guess, yeah, four teams they'd have to be better than 
to make that top four spot. And I'm not sure that is anywhere close to the case over 56 games. Well, you know, with 56 games, you know, one bad month can sink your season. Mm -hmm. That's that's the way I'm looking at it. You know, um, the way I look at it at the moment is, and I don't want to turn this into a quasi 2021 preview show. because I know we're going to have, I'm happy to say we're going to have one, (laughs) but, uh, you know, just just thinking about it, I think the Devils right now are better than Buffalo. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of people turning around saying, no, Buffalo is way better. Sure. Like, no, Buffalo is a tire fire. Um, if you see some regression, I'll, I'll say, from for the Islanders, the Capitals, and the Penguins, <laughs> and I still don't believe in our hated rivals, Dan. Okay. I still don't believe in them. I don't believe in them. Okay. Granted, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm admittedly admitting the fact that the fact that I call them our hated rivals is kind of coloring that opinion, mm-hmm. but I still don't believe in them, Dan. I also and don't it, think we'll see it, the levels of regression needed from the Islanders, Penguins, or Capitals to uh, have the no, Devils I, supplant I them. Unlike, I, I think it's unlikely. I'm just saying it's plausible. It's not okay. completely out of the realm of possibility that, you know, a team like the Penguins face plants and you know and the islanders they don't get the fortunate goaltending and they start playing down to their five on five levels and then all of a sudden you know the number four spot in in this division you know i think it's going to be called the atlantic division um suddenly is up for grabs and of course there could be other surprises along the way too we don't know you know we're assuming every nhl player is going to opt in and play that may not be the case there could be some significant injuries i mean you know Already we learned that Washington's latest signing, uh, Henrik Lundqvist, um, is not going to play the season due to a heart condition of all things. And and I, I for one, hope he gets better soon. Heart conditions are definitely serious, mm-hmm. and he's doing the right thing by not playing through it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting getting to the quality level. Now, Washington is going to be reliant on Ilya, Ilya Samsonov and Phoenix Copley to be their top goalies. Samsonov certainly has the goods, but... And, you know, the question is, you know, how much is that going to impact your team? Because it's not like Lundqvist was a scrub, even at his advanced age. Right. So I'm just I'm just throwing out <laughs> possibilities here. It's it's a very you know? rosy outlook, and I appreciate it. And I, I hope things go that way, because that would be way more fun and way more enjoyable to see the Devils make significant strides and see some of the other, some of these other teams in the division uh, fall off a bit. And one last question I have on this format for you Um is that with four divisions and the reverse retro jerseys being released this year, do you think this is the perfect opportunity for them to name these divisions the Adams, the Norris, the Patrick, and the Smythe? No. <laughs> I, I'll never understand the older fans and the hockey hipsters that seem to think this is some grand idea. I mean, first and foremost, we already have trophies named after James Norris, Jack Adams, Con Smythe, and uh, Lester Patrick. Mm-hmm. Like, we already have individual awards after them. I don't know why they also need divisions. I understand, you you know, there's there's an argument to, you know, we're, we're showing the respect for the history of the game. But the history of the game is a lot more than just those four guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be one thing to say, hey, we're going to name them after some more contemporary names, like the Gretzky division, the Lemieux division, you know. You, you, you Everyone in the comments and on Twitter can argue You're going to say you Messier know, and something? No, 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 no. Wouldn't that be fair, no. though? 
Dan, life is not fair. Well, okay. So, so why should I be fair? <laughs> okay. So if you had to choose four names, I'm going to put you on the spot right here, right now. Oh, if you had to choose four names to make these divisions that aren't geographically based, because it's hard to justify geographically naming a division that includes. But they are, but they, but they are kind of geographic. Right, based. except like for the, the fact that the Northeast exists. Look, okay, it's not a perfect one, but basically this proposed division for the devil that the devils are going to be in could legitimately called be the Atlantic. You can even call it the Metropolitan. Even mm-hmm. it's not like Buffalo and Boston are tiny sa- towns in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then you have an all Canadian division, assuming that British Columbia is going to allow people to go into their province. That's actually the one thing that's could could throw a big wrench into this current plan right now. Well, since it's British only Columbia team, is not right? playing nice right. Now. Yeah, I mean, the NHL may just say, hey, Vancouver, you're going to have to play in another province, right. similar to how the San Jose Sharks, they're going to have to start. They will be starting in Arizona, by the way, because right, right, Santa right. Clara County in California is is sticking to their guns on their pro sports plan. Again, the 49ers are playing in Arizona right now, and if the 49ers aren't going to stick around, aren't allowed to play, you, you better believe the Sharks aren't going to be allowed to play. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> right. Okay, so you're putting me on the spot yes. here. Four names. Okay, fine. Putting me on the spot here. Okay, we need a Gretzky division. Okay. We need a Lemieux division because those two are the top two players of the biggest expansion growth parts of the league, and Gretzky is arguably the best player of all time. Mm. Also in that vein, we need to have a division named after Gordy. Arguably. Who's arguing against that? People who aren't right. Okay, good. I didn't say they were good (laughs) arguments, Dan. I'm just saying that. So poorly arguably. Poorly arguably. Okay. Yes. Fine. <laughs> we need a division named after, and I'm surprised there's not a trophy named after him already. Gordy Howe. Mm-hmm. You need to have a division after Gordy Howe. Mm-hmm. And similarly, and this is going to be a bit controversial since he's actually still playing. In fact, earlier this week, he just played his first professional game. Continuing the streak, Dan, everybody's favorite Czech player, Karamir Yager, <laughs> still playing hockey. To this day, I thought we were going to have like a Bobby a, Orr division. You could, you, I guess you could have a Bobby Orr division instead. But Yager, Yager is not just reflective of the fact that you know he's a long-standing player. He's a modern, um, you know, grinder. Uh, you know, he's also a representation of the growth of the sport into Europe. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can make an argument for a Russian player like Vyacheslav Fedosov, mm-hmm. or you, you know, you could make a case for uh, Nicholas Lidstrom. Yeah. You know, that's probably the other big name. But I, I'm picking with Yager primarily because this dude was the one guy who credibly outshined Lemieux. Mm-hmm. Back when Lemieux was, you know, pre-Hodgkin's disease, winning cups, you know, with Pittsburgh, Yager was that dude. He made mullets look cool again, Dan. <laughs> And, so, and he is still playing pro hockey today. And so he's rewarded with a division name. And you know what? I don't hate that at all. I think he's great. He's almost at the he's almost at the Lee Stempniak and Cole Sillinger levels of or Mike, Mike Sillinger, Sillinger levels. Yeah. yeah, of how many teams he has played for in the NHL. So that's another argument in favor of Yager. Like he's played for I want to say close to a at least a quarter of the league. I think that's justification to, to name a division after him. Yeah, that's fair. And he's the only reason he's not already in the Hall of Fame is cuz he refused to stop playing hockey. So he he's that guy right. that will just play as long as you want, and then whenever he's done, they will just walk him in uh, immediately off the ice and into the Hall of Fame ceremony. To to put this in perspective, Dan, 
Yager playing hockey today is the same as if an NHL player that's going to be drafted on July 23rd or even July 24th and is still playing hockey for the 2050-2051 season. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 the, the, the breadth here. Like, the player that's going to play as long as Gretzky is just – I'm sorry, playing as long as Yager is just being born right now. If I had to pick a player that was destined to die on their skates – it's Yaramir Yager. He is going to play until he physically can't move anymore, and that is what makes him a legend, and we appreciate him for it. And so, because we appreciate Yaramir Yager, we're going to take some time to step away and fully appreciate him, a.k.a. Uh, we're going to have a quick commercial break. I hope uh, I hope that transition was, was pretty good there. And we're going to come back and go into the next part of our discussion on hockey advanced statistics. We have some interesting stats to build upon today uh, with our discussion from last time about Corsi. And these aren't as directly, well, you know what? They are as directly related. So we'll build on top of our previous discussions right after the break. And uh, we'll see you then. All right, we're back. And today's discussion involves a lot of percentages and it involves a lot of uh, other factors and a, a lot of things that people could consider luck in terms of hockey or at least attribute a luck factor to them. And as a review from last time, we learned that the Corsi statistic is a way to measure shot attempts uh, for a player or a team over the course of a game or a season. It's just a, a visual of their shot attempts compared to their opponents uh, shown in a percentage. And, you know, if you're above 50%, you're doing pretty well. And so we have some more percentages to talk about today. And those are going to be shooting percentage, save percentage, and a mixed percentage value called PDO. And we'll get to that in a bit. But John, let's start off with shooting percentage. And is it anything more complicated than the number of goals you score compared to the number of shots you take? Nope, that's pretty much shooting percentage in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And it's a very straightforward statistic. However, there are a lot of nuances that one needs to understand to correctly evaluate them. Mm -hmm. And so let's, you know, when you talk about, for example, a baseball player, if they hit the ball three times out of 10, they're a pretty good player. 300 is a pretty good average over the course of a baseball season. For a hockey player, the number you're looking at is closer to the 10% value. If you take 10 shots, you're doing very well if you're shooting at 10%. And that makes sense. Hockey's a lower scoring game, and there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that could happen to your shot in progress. It's either blocked by the goalie, it's blocked by another player, it goes wide. So if you score one out of 10 times, you're doing pretty dang well, which is why when we talk about Jaeger, Sharon, Govich shooting at 16% to start this KHL season, we say this likely isn't a sustainable metric, even though it's really, really fun. Right. Now, keep in mind, shooting percentage only looks at shots that get to the net. So if your shot gets blocked or the shot misses the net, um, it doesn't count in the NHL. Now, other leagues may count shots differently. They may take, they may take a soccer approach where... What they call a shot would include misses and blocks. It's it's one of those things you have to be a little careful of. In the NHL, though, it's very straightforward. If your shot gets on net and gets stopped, it doesn't count. If it, I mean, it's a save, obviously. If it goes in the net, your shooting percentage improves because it went in the net. Likewise, save percentage is the inverse of that. It's how many saves the goaltender makes over how many shots on net they face. Mm -hmm. Now, to your point, Dan... A player shooting 10% is actually not that particularly great. Okay. It's not bad, but it's not great. 
Um, a good example of what greatness looks like. Uh, you mentioned Jaeger, Sharon Govich. That's a very good example. Um, if you're shooting typically above like 12, I would say, yeah, above 12% over a season. Um, that's really good. And, and, and obviously the higher, the better Kyle Palmieri, the pride of Montvale, New Jersey, um, led the devils in goal scoring last season. And he shot at 16.1%, mm-hmm. which is really, really good. He scored 25 goals out of 155 shots. So that's how you get that. Mm-hmm. Now the team at a team level, Dan, if your team is shooting at 10%, that's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible in five on five play. Now, when you start adding power play time, then 10% becomes closer to like, okay, you know, it's all right. Because power play situations, shooting percentages are much higher in general because you're being more uh, judicious in your shooting. And as such, you're trying to shoot to score. Mm -hmm. Um, And likewise, with your penalty killing, ironically, penalty killing can your team could have a very high shooting percentage because if your team is getting shots on it during a penalty kill, it's typically because you got a breakaway or you got a two on one or two on O or some sort of high scoring chance. Um, so you don't get very many shots, but the few that you get are typically more dangerous than any other type of shot. So, but in general, in five on five play, if your team is shooting at 10%, you know, your team is probably winning a lot of games unless you have terrible goaltending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something that uh, if every player on your team averages out to shoot 10%, you're having rolling scoring from all four lines. It's something that either one line is entirely not taking shots or uh, every single line is just putting goals in at will. So it's it's very um, it's very tough to achieve something like that. And the Devils have been a team that has had abysmally low shooting percentages across the board uh, the last couple of years. For example, one, ex- one very good example of a low shooting percentage, and you can feel it when you see it, was Jack Hughes. Jack Hughes had a terrible shooting percentage of a year, which, you know, he got plenty of opportunities and you you look at it and you say, is there anybody more snake bitten? And that reflects in his shooting percentage because based, you know, we'll we'll talk about another stat of expected goals for um, another day, but just based on shooting percentage, it really feels like he should have put in more goals based on the opportunities he had and he just did not. And so his shooting percentage was hovering at what, like around a 6%, 5.9%. Yeah, it was below 6%. Now, this gets into one of the nuances that one needs to have an understanding with respect to percentages uh, for shooting percentage and safe percentage mm-hmm. uh, for goaltenders is that, especially for shooters, skaters, shooting percentage is that sometimes you just have a bad season <laughs> or alternatively, sometimes you have a really good season. So, for example, Jack Hughes, he literally just had his first season in NHL hockey. He shot below 6%. Most players in the league, unless you're if you're a forward, most players in the league, you know, if you shoot below six percent, you are incredibly unfortunate and there's a good chance you're not going to stay on the roster for very long. So so it's really a case of he was just snake bitten. Now, Hughes, of course, just played his first season. So we have no prior knowledge of is he legitimately a six percent shooter? We assume that he's going to be better than that just because we've seen the shots he's taking. We've seen where he's shooting the puck from. We've seen the shot itself, you know. Sometimes, you know, this is a this is a funny game. You know, sometimes you're you could do everything right, but your shot hits the post because the ice wasn't perfect Mm -hmm. or the goaltender just does something amazing or you thought you did everything perfect, but your blade was just not like angled, you know, half a half a minute. That that's that's not me making something up like (laughs) angles are divided into minutes and seconds. Don't ask me why but they are. (laughs) Um, 
Well, who knew that uh, hitting a small rubber disc on a frozen surface while wearing uh, razor blades on your feet would have a lot of variance involved when it comes from moving that disc from one spot to another? And and, and I'm glad you used that phrase, Dan, because variance is really the name of the game here to best understand these percentages, is that we we have to take into account that whatever's happening, it may not last forever. Mm -hmm. And it also happens in the inverse. So... You mentioned Jaeger Sharangovich. We mentioned that in his past seasons in AHL and even in the KHL, he has never shot this well before. Like this this season he's having right now with uh, Dinamo Minsk, he is not only scoring the most goals he's ever scored, but he has the highest shooting percentage he's ever had. And the concern is that, well, he's played, he's been playing pro hockey for a couple years. And it's not likely he's going to be able to keep shooting at 16 to 19%. <laughs> Based it would on be the fact nice. that he's never done that. Now, if he's done that before, for one, Sharon Govich will probably be in the NHL by now. Yeah. And two, you know, the numbers would pop off the page. Um, it's very, very hard and very difficult for a player to have a shooting percentage above the the vast majority of the league for multiple seasons. In fact, I can only think of two players for the majority of their careers there were able to do that. One of them is Ilya Kovalchuk, who just recently signed in the KHL, and nobody will miss him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex Tange, believe it or not. Yeah. And the thing is, is that Tange especially was very much the definition of a judicious shooter. He's not like an Ovechkin where, you know, he'll shoot 500 shots on net and, you know, Ovechkin just scores a lot of goals just based on volume. Yeah. Um, Tange was very much more uh, selective of, of when he would fire away mm-hmm. um, and as such was able to do that. So the point is that it's very hard to maintain a high shooting percentage season over season. And that's another concern also for Paul Mary, because guess what? 16.1% that he shot last season, Dan, is the highest he's ever had in a single season <laughs> in his career. So guess what? Unless Paul Mary plans to shoot the puck a lot more uh, this coming season, he may not score that many goals. Now, granted, there's also going to be only 56 games. So, right. I mean, you're not even if he shot the puck at 16%, again, by some magical uh, occurrence and some magical stroke of luck, um, you know, it, he may not have enough games to get to 25 again. Right. But, but that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here. And, and again, hockey is a sport where, guess what? You know, it doesn't matter if the puck bounces off the defender's skate and goes in or if the goaltender bobbles it. Or you shoot the puck directly at the at the goaltender's face mask. It bounces straight down and somehow squiggles <laughs> between your legs in for a goal. Oh. Not that I'm referring to a certain Alexander Georgiev moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought that uh, was what you had in mind. <laughs> Blake Coleman scored that goal, yep. by the way, not uh, Paul Mary. Yep. But the point is, is that in the NHL for shooting percentage, it doesn't matter how it gets in. It just matters that it got in. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that you get benefit for things that are completely fluky or somewhat out of your control – and that's why there's so much variance in shooting percentage. With save percentage, it's not as variable. However, you know, it does happen where, you know, sometimes goaltender, you're able to make your, you know, you dash across the net and you're able to slide and uh, get that shot that nobody expected you to get. And sometimes you just let in the bad goal that, you know, nine, nine, nine times out of 100, you don't let up. Right. You know, same, same, same thing here. Yeah, it's not something you'd ever expect, like a half-ice shot going in. But it's happened before, and we know that it's happened before. And so 
this is another you know good moment to bring up the concept of regression to the mean where we mentioned that uh you know that value of 10 to 12 that range of shooting percentage for a good player the average would be somewhere a little bit below that and if you're below that number it's reasonable to believe that you can get back to that uh, through regression because it's rare that your luck will be as bad a second year in a row or if you're doing extremely well you're likely going to regress back to that or closer to that mean number because it's rare that your luck will be as good twice in a row so that's where we you know when we talk about regression positive or negative we mention things like um that are very far from the mean of shooting percentage and save percentage where save percent percentage is uh you know scored a bit differently it's by decimal for some reason i don't know why instead of a percentage but i think it just well, looks I mean, nicer as a decimal um, i mean i typically write it as a percentage but, okay yeah know, sure right. but like a typical save percentage or a mean save percentage would be what like a 910 no well it depends on the situation of course okay um if we're talking five on five only um you're looking at around 91.5 percent these days. okay um, on power plays and penalty kills, there's a wider range because, again, the shooting is very different. Right. And as such, your overall save percentage, you know, this past season among, you know, goaltenders who primarily played in the NHL, not just, you know, your one gamers, your two gamers and so forth that you see for guys who just get called up and fill in, um, you know, save percentages can run for overall overall situations running from 88.6 to 92.06. Um However, in five-on-five five play, they run from about 90% to 93.4. So, you know, again, you know, a good save percentage. If your goaltenders are stopping pucks at at least 91.5%, you're doing pretty well. Um, and by the way, Mackenzie Blackwood and Corey Crawford were above 92% mm -hmm. in five-on-five five play um, as well. However, this also means that we have to be more cognizant and, and careful of overall situations and especially for goaltenders uh penalty killing situations because again there's a lot of variation um blackwood's penalty kill save percentage was actually very bad last season but we know from his five on five play that he was a very good goaltender mm -hmm. so it's not like you know the devils took a penalty and somehow blackwood magically forgot how to stop pucks it's just that in those situations teams were able to beat the devil's penalty kill and which was otherwise a very good penalty kill, Dan. Yeah. You know, the Devils penalty kill was probably the one good thing about last season's team that any anybody can say was good. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Every penalty kill gets beaten from time to time. And when you beat them, you score goals and your save percentage reflects that. So, uh, well, it's interesting to see but what also, that means. Because what that means oh, is that next season, the Devils could do nothing different for their penalty kill. Blackwood will play exactly the same way and his save percentage could be better. Yeah, which is uh, pretty good if it gets better, because Blackwood having the save percentage that he did was a big reason why they didn't just lose every game to end the season. And the interesting wrinkle in this, in terms of the Devils goalies, you know, a tandem of Blackwood-Crawford is pretty good in its own right, as you look at players who put up good save percentages on very mediocre defensive teams. But uh, there's a new wrinkle announced that as part of that taxi squad that we mentioned earlier, you have to carry a third goalie. And it, it again, it depends on what's happening with the AHL season. But that third goalie for the Devils could, you know, if taxi squad players are forced to play or there comes a situation that, um, you know, the, the team has to start them in an unanticipated way. It's really important who that third goalie becomes for New Jersey, and I'm I'm wondering who could take that spot. It's likely going to be either Wedgwood or Sen, based on you know what we know about 
their situations, but really you have to wait until the AHL comes back to see which of those goalies is going to get the bulk of the playing time in Binghamton, and I would assume that would be Sen, and which of the goalies would be taxiing around with the Devils on standby. Right, but that's what training camp will help decide. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately it's going to come down to you know who performs better in this um, training camp, however it's structured. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the stats here, uh, you mentioned a concept about regression to the mean. That's somewhat correct. And, I, and and the reason why I'm saying that is because I had to learn this lesson myself mm. years ago. And there's actually a very important statistical, but it does hit upon a very important statistical concept. And this applies to a lot of anything in probability, not just hockey stats. So you know how I said we don't do life lessons here? <laughs> We're doing one. Garden We're doing state one of life. Any, garden state of life here. Okay, everybody, I'm going to tell you about a concept called the law of large numbers. Ooh. Okay, so very simple. Simply put, it's that the more you run an experiment, eventually the average of your results is going to converge to the expected value of that probability uh, distribution. So in anything involving probability, Dan, it's typically tied to a distribution. Uh, The most common, easiest example is a two-sided coin, you know, mm. you just a simple coin. It's got a head, it's got a tail. Uh, we're assuming the coin is not weighted, you know, like the head is heavier than the tail. We're assuming that the coin is going to lay flat when we flip it. It's not going to end up on its side. So don't give me that smart aleck answer of <laughs> what happens if it lands on its side. And like, no, it's going to have to fall. We know from expect, you know, you have two options. It's it's what we call a Bernoulli distribution, meaning it's only got. A, a particular set of outcomes mm-hmm. here. In this case, the expected value is that, you know, it should come up heads 50% of the time because you have two sides. It's either heads or tails. And if it's not weighted towards one or the other, over time, half of your results should be heads, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. However, if we actually flip a coin right now, and give me a moment here, I'm going to get a coin. <laughs> right, I'm going to flip a coin, Dan. Okay, this is happening live, people. Okay, it comes up heads. So right now, I have a hundred. My my results are a hundred percent heads. Mm-hmm. Now, if I flip this two times, okay, it came up tail. So now I'm at fifty percent. Now the point here is that if I keep flipping a coin, okay, I got tails again. So I'm now at thirty three percent. So my results are going to change over time. The more I flip the coin, and the law of large number says as long as I flip it enough times a large number of times, I will eventually get to my 50% to, to justify the probability, uh, the expected value of that probability yeah. uh, distribution. So mathematically, as you approach infinity. Right. Now, that's the problem, however, is that how long, how many number, how many experiments do I need to run to get to that point? Mm-hmm. And the answer is we don't know. Right. Especially with such a sport that has so much variance, you're always going to have counterexamples to uh, things that are supposed to be the statistical mean and just don't show up that way, but can last well, entirety the, of seasons, right? Well, not just the not the mean, Dan. The key phrase is expected value. Right, right, right. So that's not always the mean. Now, if we had a normal probability distribution, then yes, the expected value is your mean, mm-hmm. but not everything is a normal distribution. No, right, right. <laughs> Especially but, in an 82-game or even shorter 56-game season. Well, that's not quite it, but you kind of hit it. You're kind of hitting on the point I'm trying to make. Here. Okay. <laughs> so, so anyway, so let's say I flip this coin ten times, Dan, mm-hmm. and let's say I get three heads and seven tails. But let's say you get a coin, same coin, mm-hmm. not weighted, 
you flip it 10 times and you get seven heads and three tails. Mm -hmm. So even though we have very different amounts here, that doesn't mean the coins expected value changed. It just means we have different results from that. And that's the result of, as you say, the variance of the situation. So bringing it back to hockey, for example, Carl Palmieri at the start of last season, uh, in the first first month, he scored six goals in 10 games out of 30 shots. So he shot 20% in October. Mm -hmm. However, in November, he only scored three goals out of 27. And he actually had an eight-game goalless streak. So as a result, his shooting percentage fell for the season to 15.8. And then it got brought back up to six out of 38 shots on net. So the shooting percentage held about steady, but it wasn't as dire because he had goal scoring more often. He didn't have an eight-game goal streak. And, and, and oh, as the season progressed, Dan, the shooting percentage you know, would fluctuate based on the results. The problem is that an 82-game season or a 56-game season or a 48-game season or a seven-game playoff isn't enough games to really get to what the expected value is. Mm -hmm. Basically, because Palmieri started the season relatively hot, his season is likely to stay on the hotter side, short of having a really, really bad month afterwards. Um, and, and the harsh reality is that teams, players, coaches, management, fans, betters have to make decisions based on the information that we have. We don't have the luxury of waiting to get to that indeterminate amount of uh, experiments to get to you know, whatever Palmieri's true expected value of shooting the puck is. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that as Palmieri gets older, he gets more injured. Um, teams, you know, figure him out, but he also makes adjustments to his game. His expected value may change throughout his career. So the general rule is that if you see a, a, a player or a team shoot way above what they have done in the past, and when I say the past, I mean like the recent past, you shouldn't put a lot of money on that continuing. Yeah. Likewise, if a player is shooting incredibly low, but you have reason to believe that that's just unfortunate, like Jack Hughes, don't put money on the fact that it will continue. And I'm bringing up money here, Dan, because this this ties into another statistical concept that is a big problem in sports, especially with gambling, because it's literally called the gambler's fallacy. Yeah. So the gambler's fallacy, I think, is something that a lot of people are familiar with uh, from an intuitive perspective where you go to a slot machine you play that slot machine a hundred times and you don't win once Well, you're like, well, I must be due. No, you're absolutely not due. Exactly. The percentage of you winning yeah. has not changed. But, you know, just because when you play the machine one time, it doesn't eliminate one of the possibilities that doesn't give you a win. It just means that you didn't roll a win on that attempt. So if you're supposed to win one out of a hundred times, you're not guaranteed to have a win in those hundred times. But um, it's the fallacy that because you see it happening, you think that someone is due. If someone has a 10-goal goalless streak, they're not due to score a goal in their next game. They're not due to score a goal in their next 10 games, in fact. It just may seem that way, but it's not actually true. Right. And and again, this ties in perfectly with the law of large numbers. Is that, it, yes, it, it, yes, over time, over a long period of time, you will eventually win at the slot machine. Mm -hmm. Over time, your player on the 10-game goal streak will score another goal. Otherwise, that player will not be in the NHL. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to pull a Riley Sheehan and play 82 games and score just one goal <laughs> against the Devils. Well, the old That's Scott Gomez, the calendar year without a goal. There you go. Perfect example. However, that it's a, it's a classic example of what is a large number here. And you raise a very good point. You know, is 11 games a large enough number? 
The answer is probably not. Mm -hmm. Is playing 100 times at the slot machine enough times to guarantee a win? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And to your point, the next game and the, or the next time you play at the slot machine does not mean you will necessarily win. It's a classic. It's a cl it, the reason why intuitively we fall into this fallacy. I fall into it. You fall into it. We as fans, we all fall into it to a degree, is because we're mixing up the macro, which is what we expect to happen over a long period of time, with the micro, which is what's happening now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they don't always mesh up. So, I'm very so the, these two concepts are very important to realize with percentages, not just with shooting and save percentages, but with any percentage of anything. If you re read a political poll, for example, you know you have to say, well, how many people did they sample? You know, how many people did they talk to? Can we trust that the people gave a good answer? And uh, if they talk to like a million people, the answer is, okay, this is probably legitimate. If they only talk to like 10, then probably not. Mm -hmm. You used to see this all the time with advertisements. You know, four out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste. Okay, well, that doesn't necessarily mean the fifth, you know, did they talk to enough dentists or did they just talk to five dentists? And maybe the fifth dentist just never heard of your product before. <laughs> right. You know, you know, and, and, you know, you have to be very, very careful with percentages or things like that. Um, and we hope in the case of Kyle Palmieri, uh, since, you know, Tom Fitzgerald is going to have to make a decision at some point soon about a new extension, which would now be March 1st due to the tentative plan. It can't be January 1st. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to be careful. Don't offer him a massive contract just on the on the basis that you expect him to keep shooting at 16 percent or if he starts the season super hot that he's going to continue to score goals at the rate he has. Mm -hmm. And so this all factors into, you know, we mentioned that shooting percentage and save percentage, anything can happen. Hockey's a weird sport. And there's a little bit of luck that factors in. And to account for the amount of luck that a team is experiencing, um, statistically, there is a factor called PDO, which takes a team's save percentage combined with its shooting percentage and multiplies it by 10 to give it a number that... Um, represents whether or not a team should be regressing to the mean in terms of their, uh, you know, goals for, goals against, or if they're, you know, if they're playing above or below what is expected of them, for example. So it's somewhere that yes. if you have a value of 100, then you're a, you're pretty much right on the ball of where you should be. Yes and no. Again, it goes back to expected value. Mm -hmm. Like, like PDO, just to take a step back here, is something that, in, in the mathematic world and the statistic world is called a heuristic. Mm -hmm. It's a rule of thumb. It's not meant to be a hard and fast rule that, you know, if you add your team save percentage and you add your um, team's shooting percentage, that it should absolutely equal one. In fact, it's actually supposed to uh, converge towards where the player, where the team's true talent is. Mm -hmm. Case in point, the Tampa Bay Lightning. For the last three seasons, they had PDO values of 102.1, 103.8 and 102.2 in five on five play. Not coincidentally, Tampa Bay was one of the best teams in the NHL over the last three seasons. <laughs> the, 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 the point here is that their true talent level may actually converge towards 102, whether that's with, you know, shoot, you know, the teams saving 90% of their shots and 12% scoring 12% of their shots, which is ridiculous. Or if they score goals at 8% and their goaltending is at 92, um, no, I have to do math correctly. 94% here, mm -hmm. which is actually more closer to what was happening over the last three seasons because Vasilevsky has been very, very good for Tampa Bay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and a, and a team shooting 8% in five-on-five five is really good, by the way. Um, that just speaks to the talent level. 
Um, and, and, in the, and in the reverse, look at the Detroit Red Wings last season. Um, they, their PDO summed up to 96. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's exceptionally low. However, that team was bad. Yes. Everybody and their mother knew that team was awful. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean that they were going to, you know, they should have been summing their shooting and save percentages up to one. It just is, we don't think it's as bad as it actually was last season. Well, guess what? Like, if you're bad, there are more times where you're likely to be unlucky, right? So if if you're bad, then the puck is going to be in your zone more, which opens you up to more unlucky bounces against you. And so it it does make sense in that way that you kind of, you know, the phrase create your own luck kind of propagates here because good teams will find themselves in more opportunities where they can get the lucky bounce and vice versa. So I I think it does factor in. Um, you know, exactly the way you said, Tampa being well above 100 and Detroit being well below show in their play, but also, uh, you know, compounded on top of the actual talent of their teams was that they experienced um, good luck and bad luck, respectively. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm that's kind of the main purpose of PDO. It's meant to really just highlight, especially in, sh- you know, smaller sample groups like 10 games, five games, uh, the past month of games. You know, you can see, okay, this team has a PDO of 104. This may not last. Yeah. It may not last. It may continue for a couple more weeks. You know, again, the gambler's fallacy still applies here. It's not necessarily going to go down right away. But we assume, we, we, we think that over the next couple months, this party's going to end. We just don't know when it's going to end exactly. Um, fun fact with PDO, you can definitely apply it to players. If you look at their on-ice uh, save percentage, meaning what is the team's save percentage when they were on the ice and their shooting percentage when the player was on the ice, respectively. For Palmieri, the team shot at 10.7% when he was on the ice, which is really, really good, by the way. Mm-hmm. And when he was on the ice, goaltenders stopped pucks at 90.8%, which isn't that good, but it's not super bull- – It's not. It, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So his PDO last season was 101.56, if you sum up the percentages exactly. Um so it, it just what that means is that Palmieri did have favorable on ice percentages. He had some good fortune. We just have to look a little closer to the percentages to show, OK, the luck was more in scoring goals as opposed to, you know, the goalies making stops behind him. So, you know, that's the big thing here. The fun fact, Dan, is that PDO does not actually stand for anything. Yeah. <laughs> PDO is the name of a it. commenter. <laughs> PDO, like there have been attempts to try to like call it like Pythagorean, you know, differential order or something like that. PDO is is a heuristic. This is another reason why it's a heuristic. It doesn't have a unit. It's not like it's a percentage Mm -hmm. or anything. It's just you're smashing two numbers together. And if it's excessively high, higher above one or 100, depending on how you look at the percentage, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your your team is getting some good your your team is getting the bounces well, and if it's well below one your team's not getting the bounces well it's a qualitative and, value rather than a quantitative one exactly and this came up with some commenter it was on Tim Barnes's blog Vic Ferrari's irrelevant uh, irreverent Oilers blog and it was some off topic post about how hot a former TV actress was and PDO the commenter jumped in and said hey i just had this idea what if you combine these two percentages and you could see like some teams, you know, the Oilers may have been like especially fortunate, signed a player when their PDO was high and then they inevitably get disappointed because things go back to their expected value, which was much lower. And 
Vic Ferrari looked into it. Gabe Desjardins, founder of Behind the Net, looked into it. Tyler Dello, who now works for the Devils, looked into it. The late Tor Perky, a.k.a. Jay Likens, looked into it. And they all found that PDO actually means something. Like, there's actually truth to that value. Mm -hmm. And Gabe, in particular, uh, back in the day, when I say back in the day, we're talking like 2010, 2011, he's, he actually called it the most vital advanced stat because it just captures a whole bunch of very important concepts. The fact that shooting percentage... A lot of things are driven by, for lack of a better term, luck. Mm -hmm. Save percentage. Yes, there's more talent in stopping pucks, but there's luck involved with that too. And guess what? You know, if you if you if you're doing well at it, that means your opponents are probably not doing very well at it. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, you know, if if you again, it's a rule of thumb. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's not you know something you write in stone. And you have to be mindful of the fact that for teams like Tampa Bay last season or Detroit last season, an excessively high or an excessively low PDO may not be super far from its quote unquote true value. But based on the law of large numbers, again, we don't have enough games to know what that true value is. So if you want to make a whole bunch of money betting on hockey, be aware of PDO. If you want to make good decisions with contracts, be aware of the PDO. If as a fan you want to set reasonable expectations for your favorite player or your favorite team, look at PDO. There is value in these percentages. And even though these stats are very simple to calculate, they've been around for a long time, it's not as simple as it looks. Well, I want to ask you offhand, we go back to that 2013-14 Devils team. Do you know, uh, you know, at the top of your head, how their PDO looked? Give me a moment here, because mm -hmm. um, many sites like Natural Statric actually have this stat readily available on their team sites. And we, um, we bring this team up as the, the, you know, the penultimate example of a good statistical Devils team that missed the playoffs because they lost 13 shootouts. Well, yeah. So <laughs> there's the luck factor, by uh, the way. Right. So looking at five on five only, because, again, we, you know, we want to take special teams out of the equation here because we're, we're, you know, the, the, the meaning of your question is, you know, the general run of play. How did they do? Mm -hmm. The Devils PDO summed up and they they do this out of one by the way at natural statric but um it's 0.986 meaning they had a team's uh, save percentage of 91.44 or 0.9144 if you prefer it in that format which was actually one of the lower ones of the league it was actually the sixth worst that season mm -hmm. and the team's shooting percentage in five on five was 7.15 percent which was actually the fifth lowest of the season of the league that season. Mm -hmm. So combined that the devils had the fourth lowest PDO value, <laughs> uh, the Islanders, the Panthers and the Sabres all had lower values and only by a little bit too. So the devils were especially unfortunate yep. and you know, you can make a case that the 91.44 uh, save percentage was a little more legitimate since the devils were running with Martin Berdor. And if I'm not mistaken, um, no, they did have Corey Schneider, but they didn't play Corey Schneider nearly enough as they should have. That's right. Uh, but the 7.15% is just a great example of a team full of shooters that, you know, they just couldn't buy goals at times. They they created a lot of shots. They did a fantastic job at limiting shots. They outchanced their they outchanced the, the their opposition. They out high danger chanced them. Yeah. You know, expected goals was in their favor the pucks just didn't go in. And think about how many times that year, you know, besides the 0 and 13 in shootouts, which is its own luck factor that we'll talk about some other day because shootouts are entirely not indicative of how a team game should be played, but I digress. Um, mm -hmm. 
besides that, you know, think about how many times that team hit the post. Think about how many times they were a skate away yep. from winning a close game. And that's what you can see summed up in that PDO that you just mentioned. So I'm glad um, we took the time to look at that one. And that's our discussion of shot percentage, save percentage, and PDO. So hopefully the Devils uh, get closer to a value that uh, is more emblematic of their talent level this year. But also, you know, it's not like their talent level was particularly that high, but it was better than than their numbers showed last year so hopefully they can get back to some semblance of respectability there and so we have one more uh, reminder for all of you as we close out this episode and that is of course that the world junior championship starts uh, at the time of recording this in five days on christmas so uh, if you're looking to watch some devil's prospects let's have a reminder from john about who's playing where that's right so starting on Oh, this is last year's schedule. I'm sorry. <laughs> Give me a moment here. I'm, you're going to have to cut that part. Out. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So just to mention. Okay. Oh, oh, okay. okay. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. Okay. So if you have the NHL network, the NHL network is airing all of the World Junior Championships this year. It's not just the Americans only and obviously the tournament. Like they're doing all the games, which makes sense because – this is legitimate hockey, yeah. you know? <laughs> anyway, so starting on Christmas, December 25th through January 5th at the Rogers Place in Edmonton, in a secure bubble, you will see 10 teams of under 20-year-old hockey players in the world take each other on. The returning champion, Canada, is in Group A with Finland, Switzerland, Slovakia, and Germany. Of note in that group is Dawson Mercer, mm -hmm. New Jersey Devils draft pick from this past year's draft, and one of the returning players from the gold medal winning team last year. He'll probably be used in a, what I'm going to call a gadget role. He'll, they'll just plug and play him where necessary, mm -hmm. but Mercer is versatile and smart enough to make that work. And of course, that Canada team is super talented. It, it, it's one of those classic cases of, it doesn't matter if you're on the first line or the fourth line. You should be happier on the ice because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're that you're, you're seriously good if, you, if you're on that team. Uh, but Canada should probably win Group A uh, out of this crew, mm -hmm. not just because they're the home team. In Group B, uh, that's going to be the spicier division uh, just based on the teams involved and also based on the Devils prospects involved. You have the United States, which has Patrick Moynihan expected to serve a bottom six role, similar to what he did for the National Team Developmental Program. Um, they're going to play so um, Russia, which features Shakir Mukamadulin and Arseny Gritsyuk. Uh, Mukamadulin is projected to be the first uh, first pairing defenseman, and Gritsyuk in recent practices was on the second line as a left winger. So expect some big roles for those two uh, Devils prospects in Russia. Mm -hmm. The division also has Sweden, which will feature Alexander Holtz and somebody coaching them since their coach got the coronavirus and um, it, it can't attend. Um, Sweden has been hit hard by the, the Swedish team has been hit hard by the virus, but Holtz is still expected to carry the load offensively. So expect him to play a big role for Sweden in that group. The Czech Republic will feature Yarmir Pitlick and a group of budding talent as the Czech Republic tries to, uh, beef up their youth ranks, so to speak. And tournaments like this one can only help them. And then there's Austria, poor Austria. You're in this group with the United States, Russia, and Sweden. <laughs> Good luck, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. It's going to be a hard time. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a relegation round this year because typically that's kind of the stakes for the teams like uh, Austria and the concerns of like, you know, say Germany, which is had had to quarantine the entire team and only six players just got released yesterday. And Slovakia and Switzerland was like, 
you know, you're you're battling to avoid the relegation round if you don't make the playoffs uh, in the tournament system. But they didn't have a they didn't have a Division One A tournament this year, so I don't know what's going to happen with that. Maybe everybody stays up for another year. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But for the Devils' prospects involved, Dan. Every all those teams are looking for some type of medal. Canada wants gold. Russia wants gold. The Americans obviously want gold. Sweden wants to surprise and shock everybody and take a medal. The Czech Republic will probably be the one team that's like, if they make it to the playoffs, and you know they'll probably be happy to not be in the relegation zone. Um, but it is what it is. But it's always fun hockey to watch, Dan. Um, it starts on Christmas, so if you've got nothing to do for the holidays, or you do have something to do for the holidays. Make some time to watch some hockey on the NHL Network or TSN or wherever else you can watch international hockey. All right. So that's our time on the Garden State of Hockey podcast for today. Thanks for joining in on the league announcement. Some more statistical discussion. We'll be back with more uh, stats for you to chew on next week. But as always, if you have any questions, be sure to leave them in the comments. Questions, comments, suggestions, they're all welcome as we get ready to restart this hockey season. And it feels exciting to say that, and I know we're all very happy to uh, have that news as well. So thanks again for listening. That's been our time here, and let's go Devils! Devils.